0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Stephanie Budnick, and I'll be your host for something a little different today. You'll hear from my co-hosts, Mark Oppenheimer and Leah Leibovitz a bit later in the episode. It's International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we'll be sharing stories of survival, revival, and Jewish pride. There are two days on the calendar that memorialize the Holocaust. International Holocaust Remembrance Day, today, and Yom HaShoah, which is in the spring. But for a lot of us, it feels like every day is Holocaust Remembrance Day. That's what it always felt like for me as the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. I remember I got to college freshman year and of course enrolled in a class about Holocaust memory. The professor handed back my first paper with a note that I didn't need to capitalize the word survivor. It hadn't occurred to me that it wasn't a proper noun. It always felt like something sacred was connoted in that word. Looking back, It makes sense. My paternal grandparents, Milton and Dora Butnick, died when I was around four years old. I never really knew them, and even now I can't quite figure out if what I remember of them are actual firsthand memories or just scenes I've pieced together from grainy photos and videos. I've always felt a little resentful that I didn't get the chance to spend more time with them or to get to know them better. They met in the displaced persons camp at Bergen-Belsen after the concentration camp was liberated in April, 1945. They came to the United States a few years later and built a life for themselves in Queens, New York. They started a family, started a business and found a social scene filled with other survivors. There were card games, trips to the bungalow colonies and lots of parties. Which brings me to a photo of me and my mom taken when I was a few months old. It's one of my favorite photos. In it, I'm wearing a full-length christening gown, complete with a frilly bonnet on my head. But that's not the thing that catches your eye when you look at this photo. In fact, you might totally miss the whole baby in a gown thing. Because my mother, who is holding me in her arms, is wearing a bright red satin strapless dress. It's 1988, and her hair is exactly what you're imagining, and she's got on bright red lipstick. This photo was framed on my shelf growing up. And I was so used to seeing it that it took years until I thought to ask my mom what it was from. What was it that she was so dressed up for? And what kind of party would baby me be at? She told me it was from my baby naming, which was held in the ballroom of a synagogue in Manhattan and was apparently quite the event. There were hundreds of people there, catering, drinks. It was a classy affair. I called my mom, Elise, and asked her to tell me about this epic party from 1988. Hi, Mom. Hi, Stephanie. Weird question for you. What do you remember about my baby naming party? So your grandparents, Milton and Dora, were part of a community of
1: about 200 couples. Uh, They were all Holocaust survivors. And they used to celebrate every occasion. They had known each other for a very long time. They celebrated each other's weddings, brises, baby namings when their kids were born, the kids' bar and bat mitzvahs, their weddings, then those kids, their grandchildren's brises and baby namings. It just went on and on. And pretty much every week, seemingly, they had another celebration like that, a big party. And they used to go out all the time. If they weren't at some kind of family celebration kind of thing. They would be at the Plaza Hotel at the Palm Court. They'd be ending their evenings there. They were very hardworking, successful, and just like a lot of the other survivors, they'd come here with nothing and had made a nice life for them and their families, and they believed in celebrating. So pretty much from the time that I got pregnant, I knew that boy or girl, there was going to be a baby party when you were born. So then when you were born, we ended up having a party at the Park Avenue Synagogue on a Saturday night, which was terrific and fantastic in the banquet room there. It was not black tie. It was very dressy. There were a lot of people. I remember I wore a red strapless dress, did not look like a mother. There was no music. There was a ceremony, not in the synagogue, in the room. And there were a lot of speeches, there was blessings, and basically it was just a lot of fun. We had two tables of friends, Grandpa Al and Grandma Seal invited their friends. We had cousins that came in from California. It was basically your standard well, not your standard baby naming. I love this.
0: These were your in-laws, right? These were dad's parents. And then they they died a few years later. And so I wonder, I mean, do you think about that in the way that we've continued to celebrate as a family? Well, sure.
1: I mean, I think they were very generous. They were philanthropic, but they were also very generous with their friends and they loved to host them. They owned a hotel in Queens and there was a pool there, which your grandmother Dora had beautified. She had plantings and flowers and stuff. And on the weekends, in the summers, all their friends from the area, it was like a country, their country club. They would come on a Saturday and Sundays and they would play cards. And that was what they did all summer long. Their wedding anniversary was December 25th. So every year they would be in Florida for that week at the Doral Hotel. And they would have a party, an anniversary party every Christmas <laughs> for their friends. So yes, I think we've incorporated that into our lifestyle. Your baby naming was just the start of a bunch of great parties you had. And I was thinking about the party that you had when you were in middle school that was in the backyard and it was raining and we had forgotten to clean up the dog poop. And everybody was slipping and sliding around (laughs) in the backyard. And dad ended up having to clean off everyone's sneakers. Amazing. I would have to say that we've incorporated it
0: into our lives as well. I love this, and I love you. I love you, too. And you look amazing in that photo. Thank you. Thank you, Mommy. Thank you, Stephanie. There's something about this photo that stuck with me, and it's not the image of my mother's hair teased beyond comprehension. It's the realization that after the absolute horror my grandparents endured, the labor and concentration camps the family members murdered, the destruction of their entire world, They took every opportunity to celebrate life loudly and lavishly. I recently found that tiny gown for my baby-naming extravaganza in a box of old baby clothes at my parents' house that I unearthed after my daughter, Edith, was born. She's named after my grandmother, Dora. Her middle name is Isadora. And to me, there is nothing more life-affirming than that. I can only hope that the parties that all throw for Edith Isadora would make my grandparents proud. Carrying on tradition and telling our stories from generation to generation is what we Jews are all about. So today we'll be doing just that in our own unorthodox way. On this episode, you'll hear stories about survival and strength and ways that Jews today are showing their Jewish pride. So in honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, here's our show. Our first segment features Victor Avery, a restaurant owner in California. His late mother, Lisa Lotte Avery, grew up outside Prague, survived Auschwitz and several other concentration camps, and spent much of her life speaking about what she experienced. Here's Victor telling the story of the unexpected way he honored his mother, along with a recording of her from a talk she gave in 2008.
2: My name is Victor Ebrey, and I run a restaurant here in Lafayette, California. My mother was a pretty exceptional, interesting, complex individual. She grew up outside of Prague in a small little village with her mom and her brother. She loved being on the farm. She loved milking cows. She loved making cheese with her mother. She loved learning how to bake with her mother. They lived the normal, at the time, life of living on a farm outside of a big city. But in 1938, the Germans were starting to move into uh, Eastern Europe. In 1942, she started her camp experience, and from 42 to 45 was in Auschwitz, Bergen-Belsen, Hamburg, and Theresienstadt. She was liberated April 15, 1945, ended up in Montreal, met my father, they got married. My sister was adopted in 52, I was born in 56. The topic of the war, the topic of her experiences in the war never really came up. We never talked about it, never. And then oddly, I was 21, 22. I swam in college and I brought two teammates home during the summer to train and they stayed with us and we had a lot of interesting talks over the dinner table. And one night she shows her left forearm with her tattoo from Auschwitz. And starts talking about her experiences in the camp, and I sat there completely astounded by what I was hearing because I had really never heard about it before. I mean, I knew she had the tattoo, I knew she was in camp, but I never, we never talked about it. And I talked to her about that moment that evening when my friends were over and the story was out, and she, you know, she took the typical mother approach to it. Of, you know, I just really never wanted to worry you about it. But from that point forward, it really launched in her this desire to let the world know what happened to her.
3: I was born in a small village in the Czech Republic, 80 houses, 300 people.
2: She started to do a lot of speaking, pretty much all over Canada, all through New England.
3: But during the night, I knocked him on the door and he said, we are moving out. moving out why this is a germans coming
2: she was incredibly passionate about not being called a survivor she wanted to be known remembered as a witness to history
3: you keep your clothes on your right arm because they need your left arm for your
2: number her mantra of witness to history is something that she thought it was extremely important and passed on to me So 10 years ago, when I made the decision to get the tattoo, it was literally waking up one morning and going, what could I do to memorialize my mother's experience? It just kind of came to me like, oh, I will try and get a tattoo. And I would like to replicate her tattoo. And I knew that her response to it would not be positive because who gets tattoos? You know, like fringe people get tattoos or whatever. So I called her one day and I said, Mom, Before you say no, there's something I wanna tell you. She says, what, what is it? Well, mom, I'm gonna get a tattoo. And she said, what, a tattoo? Only hippies get a tattoo. I said, mom, hear me out, hear me out. The tattoo that I am going to get is going to be a replica of your number that was put on you by the Germans, by the Nazis at Auschwitz. And I want to memorialize what they did to you on my arm so that it will last for me forever, as long as I'm on this earth, as a tribute to what you went through. Dead silence on the phone. Dead silence. Then she hung up. The phone rings five minutes later. She calls back, weeping on the phone. She said, I just want to let you know that what you just told me is the nicest thing that somebody has ever done for me. And I love you, and I appreciate what you've done. March 2012, I have the tattoo on my arm. It is simply her number. Simple, understated, this is what it is. Not on my left forearm, because I didn't want it to be that open and obvious and I didn't want it to be somewhere it was totally hidden. So I chose to do it on my left shoulder, left arm, right below my shoulder. I saw her sometime later that year. You know, it wasn't like she ran up to me and said, let me see it. We talked for a little while and I said to her, would you like to see my tattoo? She said, yes. And so I rolled up my sleeve and she was able to see it. And she was very emotional very very emotional very taken back by it and she wanted me to it's funny she wanted me to come next to her and put it my tattoo next to her tattoo and see if they were uh identical and they were pretty identical my mother rarely showed emotion you know she was about as stoic as you get it was it was pretty emotional for both of us she passed away on June 21st in the house that I grew up in, that she and my dad bought in 1960. And in my eulogy, when I spoke about her, I made a point of making sure everybody that was there or everybody was listening on Zoom understood that teaching people and and anointing herself as the witness to history was her mission in life. And so that is kind of my goal and motivation going forward as something I want to carry forward for her.
3: My purpose in life is to do that, what I'm doing tonight. Not many of us are still around, so I have the opportunity to speak to many, many young people, and even older ones.
2: When I do show it to people, some people are very emotional. You know, it's not something you see every day. Most people are very fascinated, they want to know more, they want to learn more about my mother, and you know, it's really kind of especially because a lot of this happens within my restaurant. I got my laptop. You want to learn more about my mother? Here you go. I'll Google Lisa Latte Ivery, and you can read. You can be here for the next hour, although I need your table soon, so don't read too long.
3: I came to Canada. I got married. I have two children, five grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. And now I'm doing what I'm doing because I think it is important as long as people like me around and can tell the truth what happened and that's what I'm doing. Thank you.
2: I'm never removing the tattoo, right? It's mine. I love it. I'm proud of it and that's something I really, really thought a lot about, wanted to do and was able to do it. I was was proud of myself. When I get in the shower every day, I'm reminded of it. That's really why I did it.
3: Are there any questions, anything at all? Whatever you want to know, I will answer it if I know.
0: The Minion is a series of roundtable discussions moderated by Abigail Pogrebin for Tablet Magazine. The latest installment of the series highlights the perspectives and experiences of 10 Holocaust survivors. The first voice you'll hear in this next segment is Abigail's, followed by some of the survivors. You can find the full feature in print at tabletmag.com minion.
4: I spoke to all of you in our pre-interviews about the current rising tide of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic attacks. What is your reaction when you hear some people say that the alarm that some
5: Jews feel is overblown, is over-exaggerated?
6: I think for those of us who are fortunate enough to have survived, it is our duty to speak up. Mm -hmm. And the main reason for that is that if we don't speak up, we increase the probability of a horror like that occurring again. So it's important for us to speak. On the other hand, we can't always scream about it. It's important to speak when it is appropriate to tell our story in a straightforward way so that people know about it. I I accept every invitation to speak, whether it is from elementary school, junior high school, any other, I think it is my duty to tell this story so that a horror like that will not be repeated again.
4: You said, "to in a way, to pick your moments, right? That you're saying we shouldn't always scream about it. What do you mean by
6: that? I think when you scream about it all the time, people get tired. I think it's important that this is a major catastrophe, perhaps the greatest catastrophe in, in the history of humanity. And I think this is something which should not be forgotten. It should always be recalled. And it is our duty, as I said, to speak about it. Period.
4: I managed to pass a law in New Hampshire. They have to teach Holocaust studies in every single school. It's been signed into law by the governor. It's now being taught in every school. And I go to many schools and I speak about the Holocaust. And I warn them against anti-Semitism. And no one has come and told me that it didn't happen because I think I'd kill them.
0: Next up on today's show is my unorthodox co-host, Mark Oppenheimer, who offers his take on how to reframe our response to anti-Semitism.
7: If
8: you make a living writing and talking about Jews, you get used to this question. It always comes from somebody in the audience who is middle aged or above. And the question goes something like this What do I tell my child or grandchild when somebody has said something anti Semitic to them? I know what this audience member is looking for a way to fight back. They want to know what arguments they should tell their children to use with anti Semites, to use on Twitter or in school or on the college campus. They wanna know what evidence they can give to anti-Semites that might change their minds. They wanna arm their children with tools to use against the Jew-haters. It's a tough question for me because, alas, I have no such tools for them. I don't know how to change an anti-Semite's mind. I don't think I've ever done it. So when I get asked what to tell a child or grandchild who is facing anti-Semitism, I say yes, they might complain to the administration. Or I give them something they can say that might shame the perpetrator. Something like, that's really hurtful. Do you want to know why? And I think that this might get somebody to stop, but that's not the main thing that I think our children and grandchildren need to be told. Instead, I tell the person asking the question that they should say this. You, my child, are an aristocrat. You are the heir to a millennia-old intergenerational book club a family of people held together by an ancient promise to continue reading the same book every year until the end of the world. There are other book clubs and there are other religious families reading books, but we, the Jews, invented this idea. And our book has some amazing stuff in it, like loving your neighbor as you love yourself and not stealing and not murdering and welcoming the stranger. That's your job, to keep reading that book reading it along with all the other people who were born into this book club or who chose to join it. You just remember that and don't worry about the anti-Semites. That's what I think we should tell our children and ourselves in response to anti-Semitism. Yes, we have to fight Jew hatred in more forceful ways and I'll leave it to others for now to discuss hate crime legislation or whether social media should be censored. But look, we'll never get rid of anti-Semitism And it's not our job to spend our lives trying. We have a book to read.
0: Before we go any further, we wanted to check in with the next generation. Here's a clip from a recent episode of Hebrew School, our kids game show podcast, featuring first graders from Central Synagogue in New York City, sharing their favorite blessings. As you'll hear, the kids are all right.
9: Um... Parents, my parents, my daddy, my family,
4: teachers, Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, having fun, also Shalom, Baruch HaShadonai. The best blessing in my life is my mommy, my daddy, my brother, and my four grandparents.
0: ago, I started to see a striking piece of jewelry all over my Instagram feed. It was a ring with a big Star of David on it. And all of these Jewish celebrities were suddenly wearing it. Gal Gadot, Deborah Messing, Emmanuel Shrieky, Selma Blair. The ring's designer, Rachie Schnee, is the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. In fact, I learned my grandparents were friends with her grandparents. And that third generation identity inspires her work. She talked to me about why it's so important to her to make beautiful Jewish jewelry and why we should all be adorning ourselves with Jewish pride. Rachie Schnee, welcome to Unorthodox.
10: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: This is this is really
10: really exciting. Can
0: you tell us about the Mazel collection? Tell us about these these Jewish stars I've been seeing all over Instagram.
10: Basically, I started a fine jewelry company in two thousand nineteen. I grew up in the business. My mom had a jewelry business my whole life. I wanted to start a fine jewelry company that had lower margins. I had a, a Megan Zavid ring that was a little bit similar to this one, and I'm like, I need, I love this piece, and I want to make it, and I want to mass produce it, and I want to make feeling like a proud Jew, something cool and something trendy and that people wanted to do. And if they had a certain amount of money allocated to buy something for themselves, that they'd actually pick that first and foremost. There was a void in the market for very cool Magin Zavid, Israel, like I just came up with the Israel map, you know, that type of jewelry. And so I just created it. I'm like, I, if it doesn't work out, like at least I'll have cool jewelry that I love. And then again, also my four grandparents were all Holocaust survivors from Poland. So I grew up with this like very, very strong sense of Jewish identity. I never wanted the Magen to to be something that, you know, the Nazis took it during the war and made it something that we were ashamed and scared to wear. I almost was like, you know what? Like, how dare they? That's not, that's not like, we have to turn that around. Like we should be proud to be Jewish. We should be proud to have it on us. You know, I guess for a religious man, they're wearing a kippah, but for a woman, even religious or not religious, sometimes you want to have something on you that sh- that like shows your pride and how happy you are and represents your heritage. So we started the Mazel collection with just the Magendavid, the Mazel ring. And I worked tirelessly every single day to make it cool, to make it fun, to make it fashionable, to post it constantly, you know, until one day I was like sitting in my—I was in Israel—and all of a sudden I hear Deborah Messing starts messaging me that she wants it, you know, and then and then it kind of snowballed, and then Selma Blair, and then Noah Tishby was wearing it, and then Emmy Rossum, and it just keeps going and going. And thank God it's—it's it's been such an amazing roller coaster ride. And the best thing about it for me is that it's not obviously the celebrities are great, so cool Gal Gadot—that was a huge one. But for me, it's just like the everyday girl, you know, just like the girl from Denver, the girl from Scotland, the girl from like, you know, all over the world, from anywhere. The fact that they have this piece that unifies them and they can be in the airport or they could be in line in coffee and they see another girl wearing the Mazda ring and they're like, oh my gosh, you're in the Mazda club? Like, I have the Mazda ring. I love pieces that have meaning and I love pieces that our conversation pieces. I love that you can like look at something and then start a conversation.
0: they are these big, beautiful, like proud Jewish rings. I love this idea of taking back this symbol and saying like, I'm going to be bedazzled in your face and proud of this.
10: A hundred percent. And also make it cool. Why, why does everyone associate Judaism with like, like, you know, all these horrible stereotypes and whatever it is like, no, we're amazing, great fashionable, stylish, like we are cool. We want to be proud. Like we're not hiding, you know, like you have to just be in every single way possible. And that includes the way that you dress. And I think it's, it's like an unbelievable thing to go out into the world and say like, I'm, you know, especially in today's day and age when everyone's like, Oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if people are going to buy that because there's so much anti semitism. It's so scary to say that you're Jewish. No, it's been like the complete opposite. If anything, it's been since the war in Israel in May to now, the Mazel sales have gone like skyrocketed. People want the ring, they want it. They want to wear it every day, they don't care. Everyone's wearing it loud and proud. It's amazing. I can't take all the credit for it because I won't take the credit for anything. I don't think, like I think everything is from Shemai. You know, like it's all, you know, everything has a reason and there needed to be this type of movement. And I feel lucky that I was able to like be the catalyst for it to show that you can be cool and you can be fashionable and you could be pr- a proud Jew. I look at my miles ring and I think of like my past, present and future. I think of my grandparents. I think of my parents, my future children. Like it's just, there's so much meaning behind it. And I love to look at it and just like, you know, I'm not just staring at a flower. Like I'm looking at something that has thousands of years of meaning. And, you know, there's
0: something on your website that I don't think you find on many jewelry company websites, which is this thing in honor of your four grandparents, all of whom you mentioned were Holocaust survivors from Poland. Like that's front and center behind the business. And I think that really resonates with people. So what is like the mazel message that you're getting across? Like what is what does this day mean for you? And, And how do these these jewelry pieces really like continue this legacy?
10: I'm named after my grandfather's sister who was killed in Belzic in the gas chamber at six years old. And her name was Rachel Schnee. I feel like my name is a dichotomy because my middle name is Faiga after my grandmother, who's a survivor, but my first name is from a victim. So I live my life kind of with this victim survivor mentality. That's why I've always been such a proud Jew. And also I've always been very, very, very into Holocaust education and remembrance, but also a huge supporter of the state of Israel. You know, I give a portion of the proceeds of the entire mazel collection to support soldiers in Israel. And We all have to live our lives every day as if it were Yom HaTzmut and Yom HaShoah. You have to think of the victims and the survivors that risked their lives, that we're sacrificing every single day that's for us to be here today. And then we also have to celebrate the country that is protecting us every single day. You know, I've always had this intense connection to Holocaust survivors. I have this like deep soul connection and I get emotional thinking about it because unfortunately my grandparents passed away my future children won't have that experience of having survivors with them all the time. And for me, like I grew up in the swimming pool with a million survivors and seeing the, like, you know, the, the number on the arms. And, and it was just like so normal for me. I didn't even know that the first time I met a grandparent without us, without an accent, I was in third grade and my friend's grandma picked us up from <laughs> school and I, and I literally turned to her and I'm like, why doesn't your grandmother have an accent? And it was like the crazy, it was, my <laughs> mind was blown. She's like, she's from New York. I was like, what do you mean? Like, that doesn't, what? I, it was like, even Rugrats, yeah. the show Rugrats, the grandparents had accents. <laughs> like, it was so embedded in my brain that like all grandparents were these European, like cute, adorable, delicious people. And and like my whole life was with them. And now to think that, that our children won't have that the way we did, it's so, so, so emotional for me. And that's why I feel like I even took it upon myself to like become the chair of Yad Vashem Young Leaders and to like be so involved with these things and to speak at all these different places and events and talk about my grandparents and talk about the mazel collection. Because like if it's not us,
0: who? I never really worn any like Jewish star jewelry because I think I've always just had this thing where I'm like, lay low, fly under the radar. Of course, like I work at a Jewish magazine. I host a Jewish podcast. Everyone knows. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm not hiding this from anyone. Well, um, but you know, Something in me has shifted. I see these rings and I'm like, I want one. I want everyone to know in every situation that that I am Jewish. And almost it's like this beautiful inversion of what I think a lot of our grandparents probably felt, which is like, don't draw attention to yourself. We will. We will. And this new generation of people are just like, we want everyone to know how amazing it is to be Jewish and how proud we are of that. And we're not going to, it's like you said at the beginning, we're not going to like let people take that from us. Yes,
10: we're not going to let them win. And like you, you Stephanie, are gorgeous, beautiful, brilliant, <laughs> have an amazing job. Thank you. You've gotten so far in your career. Like, why not have this magen zavit in everyone's face and all your business beings be like, oh, wow, she's awesome. And she's Jewish. Like, good for her. You know, people always ask me, how do I fight anti-Semitism if I don't have a platform like you? And I'm like, just be a good person. Be a kid with Hashem, like be, you know, like always represent something that's that means good. Be in, like hold the door, like do daily things. But people are gonna say like, oh, that girl Stephanie, she's so nice. I know her from work, or I know her from my workout class, <laughs> and I know she's Jewish. And like the next time somebody says something anti-Semitic to them, they'll be like, no, 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 like you're wrong. Like I know, I know her, and she's a great person, and she happens to be Jewish. So I think having that mazel piece on you is also like a reminder, like you gotta act a certain way. Richie Shnei, thank you for
0: bringing all this mazel into the world. It's been really, really fun to talk with you. Of course. So our listeners can check out the whole Mazel collection at reichyshne.com, or they can follow you on Instagram at reichyshne. Okay,
10: it's amazing. Thank you again.
0: Ever since I met Tanya Singer, our general manager here at Tablet Studios, I've heard about her cousins, Sam and Eva, Holocaust survivors who are now in their 90s. In this next segment, Tanya visited them and they graciously shared their stories of survival and hope.
5: Hey, it's Tanya, and you're about to meet my cousins. To be clear, they're my great Bubby Tilly Singer's first cousins, Eva Bender and Samuel Martyr. If you think you know Sam's name, it's probably because he's a renowned violinist and a published Yiddish poet. But that's not the story these siblings are here to tell. Eva and Sam are my family's connection to all that was lost in Europe and inspire me and so many others to live hopeful, rich Jewish lives. Eva and Sam's story starts in the late 1920s in Cernovitz, Romania. We sat down with them this past week in Riverdale, New York in 2023. But I'll let them tell you about their beginnings. I'm Eva Bender.
4: I'm 95 years old.
7: My name is Sam Marder. I'm 92 years old.
4: I was born in Chernowitz, Romania. Our father had a little candy store, but he was also an executor of a Rabbi's Real Estate. We had a very nice apartment with a terrace. It was a three-bedroom apartment, a kitchen, very nicely located. Our mother was a housewife. We had a very nice you grew up in comfort. I went to a Hebrew-speaking elementary school, which was called Safa Ivriya. There I finished school. From there on, I went to a lyceum, to so an all-girls lyceum. I
7: remember when I was uh, four years old, I used to sit under the table, and uh, our room, one room, was uh, a substitute shul. Which my father kept because the synagogue that was being built for the, that rabbi, and so I was sitting under the table and uh, and was thinking, what? Uh, yeah, it was always in the afternoon after school, and I was wondering where God is, and then I imagined that God must be in, in the, inside the Aron. And uh, sometimes he'll come out, and I was worried, what am I going to say to him? I don't, I haven't met him yet. And uh, there was a clock on the table, an old alarm clock. And then I figured, well, I'll let the clock talk to him, because God can talk to a clock, and the clock knows him much longer than I do. And, yeah, I wanted to make sure that if I ever get to talk to God, he doesn't get angry. So I was hoping he wouldn't be in a bad mood. So that was my first memories, first memories in my life. When I was three, I started religious studies. And then when I was six, I wound up in the same school that Eva wound up, which was a Hebrew-speaking school, modern Hebrew. Yeah, and the first day that I experienced anti-Semitism was the first day I went to school. I was uh, passing by a street which had a church, and near the street, near the church, was a school. So all of a sudden, I felt myself pelted with stones. Yeah, I was, uh, of course, upset. When I came back, I told my father about it. My father said, don't worry. That's what they are being taught. Then I had to sort of manipulate my way to school by either going a different street. and whenever I did happen to be to have to go to that street, I uh, knew that I had to run. so i I was running to that street I was actually running. So actually I became a pretty good runner. But for me, it felt pretty good. At the age of six, I asked my father if I could get music lessons. And my father didn't want to say no, so he sent me to somebody. He was a nervous man. He used to press my fingers against the string, and I used to cry. And I didn't want to tell uh, my father that, otherwise he would stop it. I went on with him until the Russians came in. When it comes to art and education, We were pretty good to children. In other words, whenever someone was capable, talented, they gave him all the chances to study. So I, for the first time in my life, I got a normal teacher. And I made a lot of progress during these few months. And then some Soviet officials came into the house and asked my parents if they would let me go to Moscow to study. And my father said immediately, no. And uh, up to this day, I'm thankful that, of course, he said no, because otherwise I would have had lost him much earlier, you know. I would have been away from the family. I probably would have been a completely different caliber violinist, but that was the most important part to me at that time because my father died a few months after.
4: The war broke out in 1939. At that time, the Russians came in, the Russian army occupied the city, and everything else has changed because we had to go to Russian schools. We didn't even know the alphabet. We had no idea what awaited us, but in one year, I managed to speak Russian, write Russian and it was comfortable as a student. Otherwise, of course, it was not. Uh, with them, we stayed one year and then the Germans came in. My mother tongue was German because our mother spoke to us German. Our father spoke Yiddish. He refused to speak German. The ghetto was formed quite soon. It was in a few months of their occupation and then transportation set in. So we left with the first transport, going wherever we had to go. We had no knowledge. We were told we were going to a labor area, farming.
7: And we were taken to a train station, to the train station of the city, and from there we were put in cattle cars and closed up. They were locking the cattle cars, and we started moving. We did not know where we are going. Every time the engineer needed to get off, then they stopped the train, they opened the doors, and after, I don't know whether it was, after one or two days, people started dying. And so they took out the dead, and then we went on again. This went on, I don't know for how many days, until we arrived to a place which was called Merkulesht. Romanian little town and it was a Jewish section and they put us up in, in the house, how, empty, empty houses and uh, I don't remember what, what my parents felt but I felt relieved that we were out of the train and my father, who was always an optimist said, oh, they must be leaving us here in order to do agricultural work. Maybe that's why they took us here. But soon enough we found out that they were little covered pieces of earth in front or in the back of each house, and it turned out that they killed the Jews. That's why the houses were empty. I don't remember how long we stayed there, but it felt terrific to be under a roof for whatever time that was. And then they started walking us. And they walked us by foot, and uh, obviously there are no uh, normal streets in these areas. So they took us to the fields, and it was autumn time. And uh, the weather usually in those areas is terribly rough, and uh, it gets muddy. And people started to struggle to be able to put in a foot and to take out the other. And they wanted us to walk fast. They were on horses.
4: Now, the walking, from what I remember, was a few days and nights. The weather was horrible. We didn't know where we were. We happened to come on the Ukrainian side of the Dniester without knowledge of where, where we went. It was Nobody was told in, in muds. We stayed nights in muds. It was raining, and the area was very muddy. Our mother managed to take a quilt along. We could not take much luggage. She had a quilt. She spread out the quilt on the ground for children. Whoever could manage to get his body under the quilt and the head was outside, managed from the area. Our neighbors, children, we were all like that. We stayed overnight. That was one night. Of course, overnight we had shootings for three days. We had this walk up to a point where we came, and I remember it vividly. There was, there was a river in the background. There was a table with two German officers and two soldiers next to them. And we had to approach this area, and we were told to go left or right. When our turn came, my parents and my brother were directed leftwards. And I was directed to the right. It was a muddy ground. I had boots on. For a second, I didn't know what to do. I stood there, was mesmerized. And the officer happened to turn his head to the soldier. He answered some questions. I took off. Without the boot, I left the boot. One boot I left in the mud, and I ran to my parents. I disregarded his order, and I went to join my parents. From there on, we all went together, and we walked again till we reached an area, and we were told, here, this is our destination. Verhovka in the Ukraine. We stayed there. We were put into a very large room. Forty peoples were put into this room, there was straw on the floor. It was very cold. In the room that we entered, we were 40 people, and that was in December, November or December. In the spring, there were 11 people alive. All the rest were died during, during the winter.
7: The people before they died, they sank. They were delirious. So we knew when somebody was singing too much that he would not be alive the next morning. And there was one song, which Vera, Eva, you know her, Vera? Remember her?
4: Yes, I remember yeah.
7: her. And she was a cousin. She came with us, and she studied voice. And she sang, she, st- she by the way, stayed alive, and she sang a song by Schubert. Then afterwards, when, when we came here in, to the United States and I started touring, whenever I wanted to, well, there were a few possibilities for me to play some uh, certain pieces as encore pieces. So I chose one of those pieces as an encore. I didn't have to announce what it was. It was a well-known Schubert song. And I never told anyone what the, the, the story behind it. But uh, I made the arrangement, and so I played it afterwards. How does it sound? <laughs>
5: After a year in Ukraine, in the camp at Verhovka, Eva and Sam's mother, Esther, made a choice no mother wants to make. Jewish people from Bucharest, from the capital, have
4: organized or, or have collected and managed to collect some money to pay off the authorities. And the idea was to save only orphans from this area. Our mother went and she wrote us off as orphans. She explained that this is a way of being safe, and she decided to do that. Sam and I were separated from our mother. Sam and I were picked up. Don't ask by whom, by what, who organized it. We had no knowledge. We added another group of children. We were in Balta. We were brought to Balta, which was a border city. We were put in a ghetto in in the former Jewish ghetto. There were some Ukrainian Jews still in that ghetto. We were placed with an old woman in her house. She helped us, she fed us, she gave us lodging till we were ready to depart. The idea was to bring the children close to the border of the Dniester, where Ukraine and Romania meet. There was a bridge over that to send us over. Once we are on the Romanian side, The joint or the the Jewish committee would save us, bring us to the port, and send us to Palestine. One transport before us managed to do that. When it came our turn to go over, The war came so close to that city that it was impossible to transport anybody because the Russians were retreating and they used the bridge, I mean, you can imagine. And they did not retreat peacefully. Whatever came into their hands or into their vision was killed, it was a mass destruction. That old woman. She put us in a barn. She took us out of a house, put us in a barn. The barn was not by a street or by a driveway. It was inset into an area with hay. Apparently there was a cow there previously and she covered us with hay. And the heads were sticking out. and she said, "If you hear the boots, the Germans had boots. they didn't, go, they didn't have shoes. If you hear boots coming, you cover your face with hay and you, you stay quiet. We were there, I remember two days and maybe maybe three days. Since we were away from the road, we really only heard ammunition, we heard walking, but nobody, we were safe. Well, we must have fallen asleep, or I have fallen asleep, and I had a
5: dream. We'll get to Eva's dream in a second, but Sam also had a dream when they were back in Verkhovka, Ukraine, just after their father died, and they were still with their mother.
7: Well, my dream was at a different time. We were all sick. We had typhoid. I watched my father, and I saw him die. He was right next to me on the floor. And then when I saw that, I just didn't feel any more like, I didn't care whether I would stay alive or not. I fell into a coma. My mother said it was a coma. And my father came to my dream. And uh, he came dressed in holiday clothing. And he looked at me and he said, "Uh, yeah, and I started yelling in my dream. Father is alive. Father is alive. And father motioned to me to take it easy, be quiet. And uh, he had a piece of matzah, matzah schmura it was, and gave it to me in my mouth, and I tasted it. When I tasted it, I woke up. So that was my experience with the dream.
5: Now, back to the barn in Balta and Eva's dream. I had a dream. My
4: father entered the shack, spread his hands over both of us, and said, children, you are safe. I woke up immediately and I tried waking Sam. Sam, Sam, I have to tell you something. He said, not now, not now. He's busy, not now. So I waited. He has such a fine-tuned ear that he could identify the sounds of the artillery, which was German and which was Russian. And he found that he heard the Russian artillery and the Germans did not respond. So he told me the story. He said, the Germans are not responding. I said, they're com- they very close.
7: I heard it a little differently. I heard the Russian sound of their artillery coming closer and the German artillery or the shots from the guns going further away. So I realized that the Russians are coming and the Germans are retreating.
4: We both woke up. The truth was we were liberated this day. And he ran out in the street to, to meet the Russians. I didn't. I, I, was, I was so petrified that I didn't move from that area.
7: Before uh, we were freed, I think it was one day or two days, I walked out very fast so nobody would say anything. They would not let me out because the bullets were flying. I could hear them. It was in the middle of the front line. But the uh, people that we lived with were older people and they were cold, it was freezing, and so I I felt very bad. And I felt I, if I go out and try to pick up a few pieces of wood, it would warm up the house. And so I went out and it was very easy to pick up wood because many houses, little houses were destroyed in the ghetto. And as I picked up the wood... I see a pair of boots standing in front of me. And I looked up and I saw this SS man. And this man stands in front, looks at me, and he says, get up. So I made him understand I don't know what's going on. So he says again, get up, get up. So I got up. He had a machine gun. And he put it in front of me. He said, "Jew." So I decided I'll say not in German, but I said in Ukrainian, which means no. And he thought for a minute and then took away the gun from my chest and walked off. But that was just before the, uh, the liberation. And then, of course, when they came, it was another story. We found out near our house there was a ditch, and the ditch was filled with people dead people and this picture I I don't forget I won't forget so easily there was a woman holding a a child looking up and even the Russians who were so hardened by the by the fighting and all that they were crying and I just stood I did not allow myself to be um, affected by it Mm -hmm.
4: Our mother was in a different area because that was more in, inland. And there was a cousin who, was our cousin, who was with her. She sent him to pick us up from Balta to where she was. Of course, we're talking about going on foot for I don't know how many kilometers, and he took us home. We traveled with Russian tankers. Whoever saw us on the road picked us up. In, if it was the direction we went, we hitched high, and this is how we went to uh, to meet our mothers. I had frozen toes. I could not walk, so he had to carry me. It was that was a different story, but anyway, it's, it's not important.
7: When we started walking, towards home, home, where mother was, which was, by the way, 60 kilometers. We were walking on on the ground. We stepped on dead soldiers, German dead soldiers. And I thought to myself, I felt sorry for them. And I said to myself, how stupid. They they must have somebody waiting for them, whether it's a wife or a child or or a brother or a sister or anybody, mother, father. And look where they wind up. I felt sorry for that. So we started walking, and uh, Eva, she said she had trouble. She couldn't walk with of frozen toes, and uh, we just ma- managed to make it. I don't know how long it took us to walk those 60 miles. Kilometers, I'm sorry.
4: We met our mother. And of course she waited, I don't know how long she waited on that road to see us because it took us days to to reach her. We arrived and she had bread, she saved a, a rye bread. I'll never forget the taste of that bread. We had never seen bread in, in all the days that we were away. We sat down and we started eating, Sam and I. We couldn't talk. We were just eating, eating. And in came there was a rabbi's son and he was liberated with my mother. And he said, children, you have till 10 o'clock to eat this bread. After 10, you are not permitted. It's peser. It was Pesach, Arif peser. And he saved our life because if we had eaten that bread wholly, fully, our stomachs couldn't digest that. We were undernourished. We were, this, is, this is the story of our redemption, not, not the, the Jewish redemption, but our personal redemption.
5: After they reunited with their mom, Eva and Sam made their way west in a journey that eventually took them to America. Their first stop was in Prague, Czechoslovakia. Well, we were liberated.
4: We, we knew we were free, but it had to, to set, and you have to get used to the idea of not being followed or told where to go, whatever. We went through Prague. Three girls with me, we took a walk. We went out of the of that shelter, and we took a walk. We asked for the Maharal Shul. We found it. We could not enter it because it was a, a very small, dilapidated building, but the cemetery was behind it. And we went as far as we could, and we looked out to see the cemetery. And then we went back. It turned much colder. We were in wrecks, I don't have to tell you, because there was there were no clothing at this point to change. We spoke Hebrew so that nobody should recognize that, not German or not any other language. They used to f- to know refugees were coming. We walked over and we saw a, a cafe. I still remember they had four steps going up. We were hungry. We were very cold. And one said, let's go in f- for a tea. Let's find out if, it, if they can serve us a tea. We were very cold. We opened the door, and as I opened the door, I took one look. Facing me was a very large sign in German. The sign used to say Jews and and dogs are prohibited. Here it said, Germans and dogs are prohibited. I stood there. It it took my hands away, My, my, my mind, my tears came running down because it is the first thing that I could cry, that I could, I could be human, I could see that sign. And we stood there mesmerized, we didn't move. Somebody came over to us and asked us in, invited us, said, sat us down and asked what we want, whether we wanted, he knew right away that we were refugees, whether we wanted to eat, we were kosher. We were back to our cash for the first time. And we said, no, but a tea, we'll take a tea and they served us tea. And we sat there just looking at each other and looking around. There were people around us. They saw us, but nobody paid uh, much attention to us. We were very quiet, and we thanked him. We walked out. This was my experience in Prague. I'll remember that, and I'll remember that sign as long as I live.
5: After leaving Prague, their road to freedom took them to Bavaria, where Eva would meet Meyer Bender, the man who became her husband. The family then spent three years in the foreign-walled displaced persons camp. Eventually, they made it to America and connected with one of the cousins whose address their father, Beryl, insisted that they memorize so many years before. Sam auditioned at the Manhattan School of Music, where he was awarded a full scholarship. He learned English and started his career as a professional musician. But that wasn't without its challenges.
7: And then when I started playing professionally, I went through a period of, um, of being a little down. It took me a little while to get out of it. I could not contact anyone. Uh, I, uh, I did not know how to go about doing anything. I mean, I was a good violinist, but I didn't know what to do with it. And so um, a man that I studied together with, uh, he joined the Philharmonic. He found me on Broadway and uh, asked me, what are you doing? I said, nothing. And he said, what? And then he started it. He called someone up and I started working professionally. And from then on, I used to get better jobs, more important jobs as I went on. And sort of this made me feel that I was recovering some part of of my life, which I lost. And also some part I would never get because I lost it. And there are some some things that you lose that you cannot regain, you cannot make up for time. Up to the end, I was not sorry that I uh, took up the profession and didn't do anything else.
4: What was left was not hatred, but was anger. Angry that people could do this to other people, that life could be so changeable, and what you can endure, what your body can endure, and what you have to have hope. And that really helped me an awful lot. I spoke German, and when we came to Germany, I could not open my mouth, say one word in German. This was psychological. I knew it was wrong. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know the reason for it. But they knew that it's dead.
5: That, that for me is completely gone. In 1968, Eva's mother Esther died, which left Eva, as she described, like a living mummy, completely heartbroken. So, in 1969, at the urging of her doctor, Eva was sent to Israel to find herself. I had been to Israel on my first
4: trip, My relatives were in Israel. They they also came from Europe. They had other stories to tell, but they they settled in Israel. They wanted to show me Israel. They put me on buses. I was like a puppet. I mean, I didn't have my own... My own interest even to go because it was, it was foreign. It had to come back normally and it didn't yet. Stopping on one station, we went to a lot, on the way to a lot. One station that all the buses stopped, we entered, we used what the facilities we had. It was very hot to wash my face or whatever. A German tour came. The women came in, The women came. one woman came in. She was red as a beet. The face, they're very fair. She couldn't take the sun anymore. She kept splashing water on her face. Um, I felt sorry for her. I opened without, without speaking now, nothing, didn't say a thing. Opened my toiletry, took out the cream, I handed over to her and she asked me what what it was i said this is for the for your burn she took it and i started to have a conversation with her without knowing it it just so it came so natural and when i walked out of that station I, I raised my hand to god and i said thank you god thanks for helping me i knew i had i needed that help I needed somebody to tell me that this was abnormal. This was not a natural thing. That I I had a language in my mind and I could not utter it. So this was one one experience that shows how, how the body had recovered by itself. And since then, it became I became a different person, and that that helped me recover my normality. And now now I can speak German without any problems, and I have no hatred. I love the language, against the language, all the people who are not, no longer there, we are talking about grandparents to whatever I, generation that I, I encountered. And this is my experience. You have to come back to reality, and you have to be yourself, and you have to let your, your mind work and, and skip all these bad things and enjoy life as it is, and it, it's good.
7: You left out one thing.
0: Oh, I'm sure many things. We couldn't end this episode without an appearance from my other co-host, Liel Leibovitz. Here he is.
9: Hey, J. Crew. It's Liel. You might have noticed I wasn't around a lot this episode, but I couldn't let this episode go without telling you my absolute favorite Holocaust joke. I might have told it before in the air, so forgive me, but it bears repeating. So Elie Wiesel, the famous Nobel laureate Holocaust survivor, passes on and goes to heaven. And in heaven, he meets God. And he's really nervous because he's finally meeting his maker, the creator of all things, Hashem, the almighty. And so what do you say to God? So Elie Wiesel decides he will tell God his favorite Holocaust joke. And Elie Wiesel goes ahead and tells God this Holocaust joke. And God is not laughing. And Elie Wiesel gets nervous. He says, I'm sorry, God, like, did you not find my Holocaust joke funny? And God says, no, Ellie, I found your Holocaust joke very offensive. And Ellie Wiesel says, nah, guess you had to be there.
0: That's it for our show today. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, along with Mark Oppenheimer and Leah Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Daron Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Send us emails and voice memos at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a voicemail at our listener line 914-570-4869. If you prefer snail mail, our address is P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York 10001. Remitting supervision this week by all of you, our listeners and those who came before us. We come to you from the proudly Jewish tablet studios. Shalom, friends.